Now, looking to God for his help, let's turn to Genesis and chapter 5 and verse 24. where we're told that Enoch walked with God and was not because God took him. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Now over the last while, as I mentioned before the reading, we've been tracing the development of the spiritual warfare in the world that entered with the fall. And that spiritual warfare was, as I mentioned, between the seed of the serpent on the one hand, or the line of Cain, and the seed of the woman, the godly seed, on the other hand, that's the line of Seth. And we saw how these two seeds developed distinctly, uh, geographically and spiritually. The line of Cain moved eastward away from the vicinity of the Garden of Eden. There was as much of a spiritual drift as a geographical drift there, but they very self-consciously moved eastward and they began their own civilization, which was marked out by being man-centered and humanistic rather than being God-centered. And we saw that there was a, a rapid cultural progression in that civilization, in farming, metalwork, and general culture, particularly music. But coupled with that cultural progress, there was a spiritual regress and that really came to the fore, as we saw last time, in the person of Lamech, who breaks out into a life of sexual immorality and violence, and he boasts in that, because that's largely the way the godless Canaanite seed is developing. On the other hand, you had the Sethite civilization, the godly line or the people of God. They remained geographically in the vicinity of the Garden of Eden, where there was effectively a tabernacle there, where the throne of God was, his presence in the flaming sword and the cherubim. And there they worshipped and they lived a quieter, uh, agrarian and pastoral life. So you have a distinct development of the two seeds. Now, you'll remember that uh, from last time, the genealogies, as usual, are recorded for us, but there is an emphasis on the seventh generation. In the seventh generation, two prominent individuals arise, one in the godly line and the other in the ungodly line. And fragments of their speech are recorded for us in the Bible. We saw Lamech, he represents the decaying spiritual civilization of Cain. It's characterized by a sexualization of the culture, by violence, arrogance, and a man-centered 
humanism. And there's a fragment of his poetry preserved for us, which we read together in the book of Genesis. Now, I closed our study of him last time by just remarking on the fact that it's a principle in God's dealings with the world that whenever evil is unleashed or whenever it comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raises a standard against him. And it's no surprise that a Goliath on that side is met by a David on the other. And the Lord raises up this man, Enoch, in the seventh generation, who leads the people of God against that great evil. And his speech is recorded in the Bible too. Now, I didn't read it this morning, but I will read it with you tonight. You may remember from last time, strangely enough, Enoch's speech is actually recorded in the second last book of the Bible, in the very brief letter of Jude, where we have a prophecy that Enoch uttered, a prophecy of God's intervention and of God's judgment. It's recorded for us there in the book of Revelation. These things tell us that Enoch was a man of God. He was a prophet of God. He spoke on behalf of God in his own generation. Now, I want us, with God's help, to look at this man Enoch and what we're told about him in the Scripture. And it's particularly useful when we bear in mind that he is living and beginning to confront a a decaying civilization that is spilling over into the church. Now, I mentioned that last time. I'll go into it in far more detail, God willing, in the next few weeks in the days of Noah. But it's important to remember that there is a serious encroachment now on the part of the unbelieving world into the church. And Enoch is standing against that. So it's useful for us in a decaying spiritual civilization in the Western world. I mean, that's what we have. We have a decaying spiritual civilization. It's useful to look at a man like Enoch, of whom we are told that he walked with God. And that really is the most wonderful thing that we're told about him. It's pretty much all that we're told about him, in fairness. But it's the most wonderful thing about him, that he walked with God. He is, of course, referred to in Hebrews chapter 11 as well. He finds a place in that great chapter of faithful men and women. We're told that by faith, Enoch was taken away. He was translated from earth direct into heaven without seeing death. Because, we're told, he pleased God. That tells us that he had faith because without faith it's impossible to please him. Because he who comes to God like Enoch must believe that God is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So we know that about Enoch. That his faith laid hold on the reality of God's being. He believed that God, it doesn't make sense to say that God was, He had the constant belief that God is and that God always rewards those who seek him. So we're told that about him, and we'll come to that. But here we're told marvelously in Genesis 5 and verse 24 that Enoch 
walked with God. Enoch walked with God. And of course, God took him. These are both wonderful expressions, really. He walked with God and God took him. And as I mentioned in the reading, there's, there's a way in which they jump out at us simply because they, they break into a pattern of words that is so different. I, I hardly need to recapitulate what the pattern was. From verse 3 onwards, we're told that, let's say, person A lives X number of years. The seed is born, then they live Y number of years, and then they die. Person B lives X number of years, the seed is born, and then they live Y number of years, and then they die. And in connection with Enoch, it looks as though it's beginning in the same way at verse 21, where we read that Enoch lives 65 years and he has Methuselah. But then suddenly, instead of saying that he lives Y number of years, we're told in verse 22 that he walks with God 300 years. So he doesn't simply live 300 years, but he walks with God 300 years. And then instead of saying that he dies, it says in verse 24 that he was not because God took him. So the very fact that it's recorded this way just highlights for us how wonderful a thing it is. He walked with God and he never died because God took him. Now I want to begin looking this morning uh, with you at walking with God and what that means. I think we have to begin by saying right away that we can understand the expression in perhaps two different ways. We can understand it in a kind of ordinary technical sense or in a special spiritual sense. And to understand even what I mean by that, let, let me begin by taking another word that perhaps we're more familiar with. Let's, let's take the word spiritual. If I say that such and such a person is a spiritual person, what do you think I mean when I say that? Well, it depends how I use the word. There's a simple technical sense of the word spiritual in the Bible. And it means simply somebody who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Or in other words, somebody who is a Christian. So if I say that, that you are a spiritual person, what I am really saying is that, that you are a Christian. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. In that way, the word spiritual becomes a, a wonderful description of a Christian. Some of you in here today are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Some of you are not. Those of you who are not are natural people. That's how the Bible describes you. You are natural. But those of you who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, you are spiritual people. That's the primary way in which the Bible uses the word spiritual, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But it does use the word spiritual in a second sense. It uses it of those who are filled with the Holy Spirit in a special way. Those who are 
very clearly led and guided and influenced by the Holy Spirit of God. For example, when Paul writes to the Galatians, he says to them, he's rebuking them for, let's say, their lack of spirituality. And he says, if if any of you sin, those of you who are spiritual, he says, restore these people. Restore them gently in a considerate way in case you yourselves are overtaken by temptation. Now, you'll notice when he says you who are spiritual, he doesn't just mean you Christians. He means you who are under the control of the Holy Spirit. Those whose lives are being really regulated by the Holy Spirit, you restore these Christian brethren. That reminds us that we're not always fit to help each other. We're not always fit to restore each other. If we are out of the way ourselves, we're in no position to help our brothers and sisters when they fall into sin or into temptation. But you who are spiritual, restore such people. And I suppose that's the way that we usually use the word spiritual. In other words, if I was to say, well, see that man over there, he's a spiritual man, you know immediately what I mean by that. You know that I don't just mean he's a Christian. I mean he is very close to the Lord. He is being really guided and led by the Holy Spirit. Now, the same exactly is true with this idea of walking with God. If I was to say that Enoch walked with God, at one level, that would mean simply that he was a believer, because all believers walk with God. We'll see that. In fact, we're told that Noah walked with God. It's not a common expression in the Bible by any means, but it is spoken of people who simply walk with God as opposed to walking in the unbeliever's path. But it also means, obviously, people who walk distinctively with God, people who walk closely with God, markedly with God. And there's no doubt that that's how it's used of Enoch here because it simply isn't used of anybody else. We're not to believe that the rest of those seeds from Seth downwards were not Christians. We're not to believe that they weren't walking with God, but we are to believe that Enoch was walking with God. In other words, yes, they walked with God, but Enoch really walked with God. And that had something to do with the fact that later on he was not He was not found, and he could not be found because God had taken him away. Let's look at walking with God as something all believers do, and then as something that some believers do better than others. So today here, in that respect, there may be three classes of people. On the one hand, there are those who don't walk with God at all. You may be in that category. On the other hand, there are those here today who are Christians. They do walk with God. But amongst you as Christians, there are those who especially walk with God. And let's think of walking with God as a kind of journey that has a beginning point and an end point. In one respect, 
we could easily confuse this because in one respect, it's, it's, it doesn't have an end point. Enoch never stopped walking with God. He still does in glory. But for the sake of the way in which we're looking at it, let's look at walking with God as a journey that has a beginning point and an end point. The beginning point of the journey is simply coming to God, coming where he is. The journey consists in traveling or walking with him. And the end point is arriving at the destination, arriving home where God took Enoch when he was not and God took him and where you too will be one day by the grace of God. If, if you believe in God and if you walk with God, you will arrive home too. God is walking you home to a destination. He's taking you to his own home or as Christ calls it, my father's house. Now the beginning point of walking with God is when you come to God. You come into his fellowship and into his presence. And for that, you need faith. And with that, can you just move forward for the rest of the sermon to Hebrews chapter 11? And to the words that we read there in connection with Enoch. Page 1381. Hebrews chapter 11, we read in verse 6 about Enoch, without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who, now here you have the start of the journey, he who comes to God to walk with him must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So <clears throat> if you're going to ever walk with God and be with God, you're going to be saved, you need that kind of faith. You need to believe that God is and that God is the rewarder of those who seek him. Now, I don't know, but at the outset, I think it's worth asking the question why Enoch's faith is described like that. I mean, when you look at the faith of other people like Sarah, she had faith to conceive seed in herself. Um, Noah had the faith to build the ark that God commanded him to build. Uh, Abraham had the faith to offer up Isaac, like we saw a few weeks back, just as God told him to offer up Isaac. It's worth stepping back and saying, why, why is Enoch's faith described in this kind of way? Uh, as someone who comes to God believing that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. I can't tell but wonder if it's got something to do with the fact that he was living in a world that was beginning to deny these things in a very forcible and vivid way, increasingly denying that God was or that God is or that God rewards anyone who seeks him. And a civilization or a culture can begin to live like that, even if they still use religious words and refer to religious concepts. We're familiar with that kind of thing. We we still live in a country where, for example, in Parliament, when there's a tragedy, one after the other will stand up and say, well, our thoughts and our prayers 
are with these people? Well, no, they're not, because you don't pray. And what's more, when people talk about prayer and God, you say, don't mention God in this place. Or as Alistair Campbell famously said on behalf of Tony Brown, we don't do God. But yet, when certain occasions arise, our prayers are with them. It's a nauseating kind of hypocrisy, which is all around us anyway at the moment. But you find this kind of religious language where genuine religion has gone. And when it comes to Lamech, and when you listen to his boast about, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, I'll be avenged 77-fold. I struck a young man for wounding me, and I killed him. Listen to that, you wives of mine, the first polygamist. Here is the first boor and bully, uh, loudly proclaiming his own lifestyle and his immunity from any kind of judgment. And although it sounds on the one hand as though he's appealing to the God of Cain to be his protector, He's not doing any such thing, really, is he at all? In fact, he doesn't even use the name of God as such. You get the feeling that this is a man who has ceased to believe in God in a civilization that has ceased to believe in God, even if they still call their children with religious names. And it's one of these interesting phenomena that you'll find that the ungodly seed here, right down to the days of Noah, still give Christian names to their children. Well, so they do in the UK too. Many people who give Christian names without thinking to their children when they pay no respect to God or to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very easy to believe in Enoch's generation that the people of God are being encroached in their lives significantly by people who don't believe that God is, and that God is certainly not the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In other words, well, you live, you live your lives, if you like, in the worship of this man in the sky, but it won't change life for you. You'll die like we die. I mean, we all die, and he died, and he died, and he died. You'll suffer accidents, we suffer accidents. We've got good and bad in our lives, you've got good and bad in your lives. Well, you go to your sanctuary and you pray, but the one to whom you pray does not exist, and he does not reward people who seek him diligently like you do. And I can't help but think that that is the reason why Enoch's faith is described in these terms. Because he holds on to the belief that God is and that he genuinely is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, both these parts of faith are important. He first of all believes that God is. And again, you can emphasize that in two ways. He believes that God is, and he believes that God is. Both emphases are important. Let's take, first of all, the fact that he believes God is. 
In other words, he doesn't just believe that there is a, a certain kind of God. In fact, he doesn't just believe that there is a God. He believes God actually is. I mean, do you think it's enough to save your soul to believe that there's a God? Well, I hope you don't. It would actually be quite ridiculous for you to think that you could be saved by believing there's a God. I mean, by what stretch of the imagination could that convert your destiny point from hell to heaven, the fact that you believe there's a God? Does that make everything okay? In fact, according to the Bible, we are absolutely idiots anyway if we don't believe that there is a God. To refuse to believe in the existence of God in the Bible makes us officially fools, according to the Bible. You know how the psalm begins, Psalm 14. It is the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. The real question is not whether there is a God, but what kind of God is there? What is this God like? If you were to say to me, for example, well, I, I believe in a higher power of some kind. Well, what use is that? If I was to ask you, what do you mean by higher power? You'd probably go on the back foot and say, well, I'm not really sure. It's a cosmic energy or force of some kind, something that's absolutely behind everything. And if I was to ask you to explain how this cosmic force or power has brought everything into being in the form in which it exists and sustains it, you'll probably be at a bit of a loss and you'd probably be pushed into a position where you would have to say that this, that this force must be something more than electricity or or a force of that kind. It must have some kind of intelligence, must have some kind of personality or some kind of will. So you would be forced to say that there is a personal God out there, that there is a God who is in some sense like ourselves. Does that save your soul? Well, no, it doesn't. That just takes us back where we were. We're fools to believe that there isn't such a God. The only God that we are required to believe in is the God who actually is there. The one who has revealed himself and revealed himself in history and in the Bible. That's the God that we need to believe in. He's actually an individual, if I can speak of him in those terms. He is a person. He is tripersonal. He is identifiable with a distinct character. Him. Not our God, but him. He's described, of course, in the immortal words of the Shorter Catechism, as a spirit. He is infinite, without physical bound. He is eternal, without a temporal bound. He is unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This is the one who has revealed himself in the Bible as the Jehovah, the I am, again, the self-existent, unchangeable one. He has revealed himself supremely as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God who 
judges all things, the living and the dead. It is the God who enters into covenant relationships with people, delivering them from hell and delivering them into life and into heaven. It is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of David, the God of Israel, the God of all Gentiles who believe in him. That is the God that you must believe in and no other because there is no other. Now, of course, Enoch knows about him. I'm sure in the Canaanite civilization, the knowledge of him is still preserved too, because, but sadly, as always happens, when the source of the knowledge is kept from people, the knowledge itself gradually becomes corrupted. It's a bit like Chinese whispers as it goes down from one generation to another. But the true knowledge of God is still retained amongst the people of Seth. It's worth noticing that when Enoch is in his earlier years, Adam is still alive. That might not be obvious from us in reading the scripture, but if you, as they say, do the math, you'll discover that Adam still lives while Enoch is walking on this earth. And you have a holy transmission of the truth of God from one generation to the next especially as it's given to the single seed who becomes the priestly custodian of God's truth in every single generation. Seth, Mahalalel, and Jared, and so on, down to Enoch. So really, Enoch is required to believe that he himself is created. He needs to believe that He and his fathers were in a covenant relationship with God, which has been broken. Enoch needs to believe in the reality of the sinful condition into which he and everyone else was born. Enoch needs to believe that death, as it creeps up on every single one of them, is is something that will happen to them all, that it's a penal thing, And it's not an evolutionary inevitability of some kind. And Enoch has to believe in the reality of heaven and hell. And Enoch, too, has to believe in the reality of a Messiah to come. Remember that in every generation, they are bringing their animal, their sacrifice, to the sanctuary at the east entrance of the Garden of Eden, and calling upon the name of the Lord. By faith, they are looking beyond the gate, believing in the paradise there, and the tree of life that still stands in the midst of the garden of God, and believing that this animal represents an individual who will open these gates and bring them into the presence of God. He must believe that that God is. And of course, He must believe that that God is. He must believe that what Adam and his descendants have told him is not a fable or a tissue of fabulous stories. He must believe that it's not a collection of myths. He must believe that this idea of a God who is still to him invisible is not just a human construct or a religious meme of some kind or some kind of invention to make life a bit more tolerable for people. He has to believe that he exists. 
That is the question. It's the question for you. Do you believe that this God exists? I think it's it's worth emphasizing the fact that there are actually no prizes for doing that. There's no, there's no prizes for believing this God exists. I suppose there's no verse that takes that home so vividly for us as, as James 2 and verse 19. It's just a few verses, a few pages on from where you are in the scripture. James 2 at verse 19, where James asks the question, do you believe? James 2, 19. Or he says, you believe that there is one God. You do well, he says. And there's a a kind of note in that, you do well. But he says, I want you to know that even the devils believe and they tremble. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. So that's what I mean by saying there's no prizes for believing that this God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the God of Enoch exists. You believe it, there's no prizes. The demons believe that. What's more, they tremble. I mean, James, when he says that, is saying that they are probably doing more than you do. You may say that you believe in God, that you even believe in heaven and hell, but you don't even tremble. You believe in the reality of hell, but you don't tremble. You don't have the sense to tremble. Whereas he says the demons tremble at the conception of God and they tremble at the reality of hell. You remember when Jesus confronted the evil spirits that were possessing a man early in his ministry, we're told that those evil spirits confronted Christ and said, have you come to send us to the abyss before the time? A consciousness on their own part that the the relative state of freedom that they had would come to an end that there was a final judgment awaiting themselves as evil spirits when they would be cast into the abyss from which they would never emerge. They had the sense to tremble at that. And far from believing in God giving you a ticket to heaven, it only condemns you in light of the fact that you're still not trembling, that you are going to hell. No prizes for believing that God is. We must believe something more than that. And Enoch does. We're told that Enoch believed that God was a rewarder of those who would diligently seek him. The the word seek there is a, a Greek word that's got a little intensifier at the front of it. And I sometimes think that the best translation of it would be seek him out. Diligently gets there, all right. But there's something about the idea of seek him out uh, that's useful to get a hold of. I suppose it conveys to us in some ways that there's a sense in which God is veiled all the time. Maybe that's a frustration to us. We look up into the heavens, which his own fingers framed, to the sun and the moon and the stars, which were by him ordained. And as Psalm 19 tells us, these heavens are a signature. God has signed himself off like an artist signs himself on his painting. The existence of the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens are God's signature. Look, this is me. This is who I am. But nonetheless, he is veiled. 
It's as though we, we see him through the work that he has done. And it's always that way. He has revealed himself in the Bible, but there's a sense in which the Bible is a veil too. These sacraments that we're looking forward to having one day by God's grace, and let's not forget that it's a chastisement upon us that we don't have them, but the sacraments that we look forward to with the bread and the wine are themselves veils, are they not? You're seeing through a glass darkly. You're seeing the blood of the Lord in wine. You're seeing his body in bread. And as you taste these material things, you're getting a hold of the God who is invisible. Hebrews tells us as Moses was making his way through the wilderness, that he endured seeing him who is invisible. That's wonderful, that. Wonderful expression. Seeing him who is invisible. But seeing him by faith. Seeking him out by faith. Faith gets beyond the veil. Faith is able to lift up the veil. And in the Bible, it sees the face of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the wine, it sees the blood. In the bread, it sees the body. In this house of God today, we see the presence of God. He becomes real so that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the very evidence of things that are not seen. Faith realizes what is absent or makes visible what is invisible. Enoch had that kind of faith. You must have it too. Very well. Suppose you reach the point at which the devils are at. Suppose you get that far. Suppose you believe in the reality of this one true and living God. Suppose you believe that he's the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Suppose you now believe that he has your destiny in his hands, that he will judge you. Suppose you believe in heaven and hell. Well, what do you do about that? Will you seek out that God? Do you believe that he'll reward you? If you come to him, to put it very plainly, do you believe that if you pray, he'll listen to you? Do you believe that if you confess your sin to this God today, that he will forgive you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you ask him to indwell your heart, that he will actually indwell your heart, whether you feel that or not? Do you believe that if you ask this God to guide you through life, that he will actually lead and guide you? Do you believe that if you ask him to instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go, that he will do precisely that? Do you believe that if you forsake your life of sin and repentance, that God will begin a close walk with you in this life? Do you believe that if you come to him now in faith, doing these things that he will receive you as his child and as his friend? Do you believe that he'll initiate a fellowship and a relationship with you, guiding you in the path of holiness, keeping your feet from falling, saving you from death and hell, and bringing you to his eternal home? Do you believe that? That is what it means for God to be a rewarder of those who diligently seek him.
It means all that. It means more, or at least you could break all these things down, but it means all that. Do you believe that? Why is it important to believe that? Because if you don't, you won't come to him. You'll notice that the text actually says, he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him out. He who comes must. In other words, if you don't believe that, you won't, and you can't. You'll never come. You may go halfway and believe that he is, but that'll never take you to God. That'll never take you to God. What will take you to God is the full persuasion that he will reward you if you diligently seek him out. That reminds us of what I think we should know, that true faith is always a matter of the head and the heart. can never get away from that. It's always a matter of the head and the heart. Believing that he is, is for the head, really. It's for the head. Believing that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him is very much the head and the heart. If you believe it, you'll act on it. I remember telling the children some time ago about Blondin, the famous um, tightrope walker, who was, I'm pretty sure, the first to walk on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And um, he... It, it was asked of the people, there were, there were huge crowds watching him do it, understandably. I mean, if you've ever been there, it's, it's an incredible sight. And to imagine a tightrope stretch over and somebody walking on it is something else. But this man was a, an extraordinary man. But, but the people around were asked, do, do you believe that he could take a man across there on a wheelbarrow? And they said, yeah, we believe that. And then who will go into the wheelbarrow? Nobody. No takers. Although they all believed he could. No takers. So could he really then? Could he really then? I mean, if, if, you're, if you're here and you say to me, well, you know, you know this, I, I really believe in God and I, I believe in heaven and I believe in hell. I say to you, no, you don't. Not if you're not a Christian, you don't. You're just like the people in Niagara Falls who say, oh, yeah, but no. Because for some reason, you're holding back on it. For some reason, you're holding back on it. Now, you, te you tell me why you're holding back on it. Is it because you don't believe that God is all these things? Is it because heaven is not good enough for you to really want or because hell is not bad enough for you to really want to avoid. I mean, tell me. You, you tell me. You tell me. You're the one who can sit there and say, well, I believe that everything you're saying is true. And you do nothing about it. In what universe does that make sense? I can only conclude that really you don't believe at all. And that's why you don't come. Because he who comes believes that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that, of course, means personal consecration. <clears throat> you give yourself to God. You don't just believe he is, but you give yourself. That personal consecration just 
takes me in closing to Enoch's name. It's interesting that his name means consecrate. It's interesting, too, that that's what Cain called his son. Um, although, although Cain, remember, called the city by the name of his son, consecrated. It was consecrated to, to his son and to himself. It, it was a human consecration to humanity, whereas Enoch is consecrated to God. Absolutely consecrated to God. He began this journey of walking with God simply by coming to him, believing that he was and that he would reward those uh, who sought him out. What that means for Enoch's life, and I was going to say for his death, not not at all for his death, uh, we'll see God willing tonight. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, grant us the spiritual understanding and the spiritual courage to embrace the truth and to follow it through in life. You have revealed yourself. There are times like Israel when we say that truly you are a God who hides yourself. And we know that there is a sense in which you always remain veiled in this world. But nonetheless, you have revealed yourself and help us to believe in your being and in your faithfulness and in your truth and grant us grace to believe that you will always reward those who spend their lives seeking you out. And we pray to always be of that number that seek the Lord and his almighty strength those who seek your face, those who seek your favor, those who seek out your presence, and those who are daily seeking the way to the land of rest and promise. Bless us, we ask, and continue with us through this Sabbath day. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, bring your worship to a close, singing in Psalm 25 on page 231 in your psalm book. Psalm 25. At verse 4, the first version, the short meter version of the psalm. Here is someone who's wanting to walk with God at all times. Show me thy ways, O Lord, thy paths, O teach thou me, and do thou lead me in thy truth. Notice he's walking with him. Therein my teacher be, for thou art God that does to me salvation send, and I upon thee all the day expecting do attend. Verse 8, God good and upright is, the way Heal sinners show. So he has a persuasion that what he asks, God gives. The meek in judgment he will guide and make his path to know. The whole paths of the Lord are truth and mercy sure to those that do his covenant keep and testimonies pure. Let's stand to sing.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.